This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Well, hello, Ian. Here we are back again for, I guess we ought to call it, the relaunch of our podcast at your own risk. Hello. Yes, it's great to be back after quite a long period. I think it's been about four or five months now. I know it's been a while and time has really flown, hasn't it, since we last got together to talk about all things risk management, well, particularly at Great Ormond Street, where we both work, but in general. And of course, we're relaunching the podcast for sort of particular reason, I suppose you could say, aren't we? Do you want to say a bit more about that? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess when we first decided to do a podcast, we had a few different considerations around our target audience and what we want to say and who we want to say to. And so that version of the podcast, the first season, so to speak, was on our local education system, the DEN. This version will be available online through a variety of different channels, all the usual places where you can get podcasts. So through Spotify and, and other kind of platforms as well, links will be provided. So we'll be reaching a wider audience. Which is fantastic. So yeah, all those chart-topping podcasts that obviously better watch out because here come Ian and Claire and risk management. So I suppose we're we're going to call this new episode one, aren't we, of the second series? Yes, exactly. Season two, episode one. Yeah. For those who might want to go back and listen to season one. So I suppose having had a bit of a gap between our last discussion and this one, listeners might be thinking, well... What have you been up to then? If you haven't been recording at your own risk, does that mean you've been doing nothing on risk and not really thinking about it? I don't think that's that would be really true to say, would it, or fair to say we've been doing nothing. So I know you, you've been quite close to some of what's been going on. So do you want to say a bit about those events? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, obviously, with everything that we do, we're working through a process of continual improvement with input from all of the different teams, so clinical teams, corporate teams, and of course, safety itself. And I think we discussed in the past, some of the systems that we have now don't fully support the work that we would like to do. And so there has been some improvement work around looking at how we can improve those systems. So primarily, obviously, our incident management system, which is currently Derex, and with future changes to uploads of incidents, we're having to become LFPSE, learning from patient safety events, compliant. And through that process of upgrading our system and looking at all the various systems available, we will hopefully be improving what we can do around risk. And so the big deal there is, you know, whether or not we go with DEX or we go with another system, how we can align the new system with what we need from it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been in a way the, it's the key to unlocking quite a lot of the changes that we've been talking about over the last, well, almost a year and a half, really, in terms of how we improve the standard and the quality and the technique, really, and understanding of managing risk at GOSH. And lots of our ambitions are really bound up or tied into the functionality that a new local risk management system 
whoever the provider is or the supplier will bring us. So as we sit here today, we aren't yet at that point, it's fair to say, isn't it? But that is really gathering momentum, as you've described, because we as an organisation in common with all other healthcare providers within the NHS need to move towards learning from patient safety events and have that underway by September of 2023. And that will bring with it either an upgrade to our existing platform or a whole new platform. We don't know which, but part of the specification is this vastly improved functionality to the risk management module, which of course will bring with it lots of demands on us to support teams to make use of that functionality because it's one thing to have it, it's another thing to use it, understand it, apply it and for it to bring a benefit. But we haven't been entirely idle otherwise, have we, in terms of just making incremental changes and improvements to the way we manage risk at GOSH. What sort of things have we been doing, Ian? Well, you know, as you all know, both of us work together with you leading and me kind of supporting on the new risk management policy or, you know, not that anything's ever fully new, but the updated risk management policy probably should say, which had a few quality of life changes in it, which I guess aligned us more with what other trusts do and gave us a, a kind of a more of a robust oversight of the most serious risks, those that have the highest potential for harm and the highest likelihood of harm, which obviously are the ones that the, the organization needs a kind of an immediate and up-to-date understanding of where we're at with. So I guess, do, do you want to talk a little bit about how we've, we've done that, what those kind of big changes were? Yeah. So I suppose there are several parts that go with that. And in no particular order of importance, one of them, and certainly for me, a really important change has been to increase the threshold of what we designate as a high risk at Great Ormond Street from a score of 12 or a rating of 12 to a score or a rating of 15. And for me, that was always a, a, a I wouldn't say necessarily a quick win, but it was very much an obvious and urgent change that needed to be made because we had far too large a cohort of high risks, those rated 12 and above, there were 60 odd of them. And I don't think that that really enabled the organisation to have a meaningful grasp of where its really high risks lay because there was just too much noise and too much stuff competing for attention and stuff that was being designated a high risk when in reality it probably really wasn't. I wouldn't say we've necessarily eliminated that last phenomenon just because we've got smaller cohort of risks, but the problem is of a different nature now. It's more down to whether the risks themselves that have been identified really fit the the rating that's been assigned to them, not whether there are just too many of them per se. So changing that rating from 12 to 15 for a high risk is the first sort of fairly major change that we made. And that 
was put into the new policy, was signed off by the Trust's Audit Committee, because that's a really important stage of the governance for changes like that. It's, you know, it is a, an important and significant and noteworthy change. So we can't just go off on a frolic of our own and do that without reference to a body to sort of check, challenge and approve that. And alongside that goes a change to the review schedule of our risks. And I won't talk in detail about all the three tiers of risks, but the one that we've just been discussing is the high risks. And that review schedule has now moved to monthly because I think it's accepted. It's certainly very much my view. I think you probably share this view or are not unsympathetic to this view that your higher rated risks in the organisation, if they genuinely are the most important risks for the organisation, should be subject to very regular review. So we made that change to monthly review. That's not without its challenges, and we're not going to pretend that that is sort of cost neutral in inverted commas. It does, of course, have an impact, and we recognise that. I'm, I'm certainly interested to hear from you, Ian, as someone who's very close to the day-to-day management of risks and in particular high risks in the directorates. How's that landed? What what challenges does that bring? So it's a good question, actually. I think all change is difficult at first. People are not familiar with ways of working and it takes a while for them to change to the new system, to understand the new process and how they might use it to their advantage. I think what's really important to remember is that culturally, and this is a, just a a great woman's street thing, but it's an NHS thing. Risk action groups have been the primary driver for updating risks. And the the honest truth is, is that that is not the best way to manage risk. It's the best way perhaps to have oversight of those risks, how they're managed to make sure that they are being managed and to have that assurance. But it isn't the best way to manage them in that meeting. And so what you will often have with risks and you know, high risks included, is that you'll get to the meeting and they'll say, you know, Dr. Smith or whoever it might be, you're the risk lead for this. What's happened? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I was supposed to meet with such and such. I'll go away and I'll, I'll get back to you next month. And then next month again, nothing significant has happened. Whereas in reality, what should be happening is just like with any sort of ongoing project or problem, you know, you would you will stand up some sort of working group who will be beavering away in the background or, you know, at least have some sort of action plan that you have things that you need to do in order to mitigate the risk. And what you should really be doing at the risk action group is saying, this is what we've done this month. You know, it's already detailed in the report, but I'm here to elaborate on that if the mayor should. So that culture shift from risks being updated at RAG to risks being risk updates being described at RAG is the shift that we'll have to make in order to get better compliance on high risks. I mean, are you are you of the view that it's ultimately going to be a benefit or do you think it's just going to make, you know, is the net effect just going to be making more work for people? What's, how do you feel about it? I think that as the, as that change happens, it will have a benefit in that. I think once a month is a reasonable review period for something. I mean, when we bear in mind that the lowest a risk can be to be high as a 15, which is essentially a moderate level of harm happening on a very regular basis or a catastrophic level of harm 
happening on a predictable basis. Mm. I think both of those are, are, are very concerning things, you know, both of those. And so realistically, at a bare minimum, there should be a monthly update. In reality, for some of the highest risk, I mean, if God forbid we have anything at a 25, but even at a 20, you know, you, you really want to be having weekly meetings to resolve that that issue as soon as possible, because what you're saying is that there's a serious risk of permanent harm happening to patients and it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that, that's a terrifying level of risk. And so mm-hmm. I think monthly is, you know, is a reasonable frequency level. Yeah. It just getting those updates onto the system is the challenge in bit. Having that culture shift so that people understand that risk action groups are not there as a monthly project management meeting for the risks. They're there just to kind of provide an update and an information and learning sharing exercise. Mm. And I, I suppose also what goes with that then is what's the onward oversight? Because as you say, the, the rags are the sort of principal forum or mechanism by which there is this sort of very active and frequent discussion and analysis and updating of risks at, at all levels, but we're talking about high risks. But that's then reported now onto our operations board, particularly the movers and shakers, if you like. So new high risks, risks that weren't high before that have come high for whatever reason, and the check and challenge around that, and risks that were high that have now been designated lower risk, which is great, moving in the right direction, but just checking that actually there's a sort of valid rationale to underpin that change in the rating. And that flow of information now is sort of better established but I think that you and I both know, and we've talked recently a bit about how there is still the potential for us to sort of close some of the gaps in understanding about where those decisions originate and how they're checked along the way. But I think it's really important that there is that executive level oversight of that cohort of risks. And actually, in fairness, I think the process that the chief exec here, Matt, has very much been responsible for instigating, has been instrumental there, that's the word I was scratching around for, instrumental in instigating is a regular review of very high rated risks that appear to be static or stuck at a 20 rating and to invite risk owners to come and talk to the risk and compliance group about what are the particular circumstances around that risk. And that's led to some quite beneficial and positive changes around some quite old risks finally being really picked apart for what they are now and has led to them being reviewed and downrated, which is has provided a sort of more realistic expression of what the risks are. But we know that sometimes people think a high rating gets your risk more attention in inverted commas. What, what's your feeling? How do you feel about that concept or approach? So I think what people want when they want attention is they want the risk to be resolved. That's what they want. They're, there's a problem. It's interfering with their work. They're concerned about it. They're concerned about the impact it has on patients or the service delivery, and they want it to be resolved. And so they think that by raising the risk sometimes, what it does is it creates more involvement from a more senior level. So the senior leadership team of the directorate or operations board, or even the executive team. And sometimes that's understandable. Sometimes you do need intervention from a more senior body to get a risk moving. 
Mm-hmm. But sometimes the, the the kind of key issue can be a lack of action plan at the, at the basic level. And so some of the risks that I've seen move the quickest have been ones that have developed an action plan, even when they're quite a lower level risk. And sometimes they involve multiple different teams, you know, and support teams. I mean, I always pick on ICT, but, you know, as an example, but if you're a clinical division and you have an action that is relying on ICT or our transformation team, for example, to do some work, then, you know, a lot of people feel stuck on how to progress that. When you develop an action plan and coordination with those people, you know, this person's going to do this, they're going to do it by this date, this is the resources they're going to need, or they set up a planning meeting or something like that. Sometimes, you know, you see risks, even quite complicated ones get resolved over the course of a few months. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly like the key controls will be put in place very quickly. Whereas other risks where someone's just said, look, this is a really big problem. I'm going to put it on the risk register, but I can't do anything about it. So I'm not going to do anything. They can sit there for years. And so there is a real kind of contrast there. Now that is, that's generalizing. Obviously there are a lot of serious risks that aren't moving for a very good reason. Mm. You know, one which will be familiar to colleagues across the country, for example, you know, ever since the CJD scare in the late nineties, we've been waiting for definitive guidance from NICE on how to manage surgical sets. So mm. at the moment, originally after the, after that happened, most hospitals kept two separate pools of sets. Yes. And you know, that's quite a significant risk because there's a risk of contamination. There's also a financial element to it mm-hmm. because some of the sets are very expensive. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's quite a significant risk that hasn't really moved a lot in the last decade because we're still waiting to a large extent on this guidance from NICE. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, most hospitals have downgraded and closed that risk on the basis that we've never had an incident. Yes. But the, you know, the risk of having two pulls remains. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are some situations where risks are static for a reason that's external mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. But I would say that in, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it's due to the lack of a cohesive plan for how to mitigate the risk. And that is something that with our support, you know, can be done in any area, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose for me, the the bottom line on that, well, perhaps not the bottom line, but how I would sum that up is that, yes, sometimes having a high rated risk does get you more attention, but it isn't always the attention that you wanted. So you have to be prepared to take the kind of obligations that go with a high risk if you feel that a situation warrants expression as a high risk, then you've got to be prepared to do the hard yards of maintaining it, reviewing it, managing it, and making sure that there are detailed controls and that you're constantly reviewing those and that there's a really clear action plan. Otherwise, it's sort of saying, well, we've got this really high risk, but it is not clear what we think needs to happen in order to reduce it or resolve it. I suppose in support of that, Ian, and really just mindful of helping, because we do want to help certainly our colleagues here at GOSH with the day-to-day challenge of managing risks, We've produced some guidance, haven't we, recently, that you and I co-authored over recent months, and we are about to publish that on our intranet for those who have access to the internal GOSH intranet. So what could we tell people as a sort of bit of a sneak preview around that? Yeah, I guess the idea of this guidance is to provide a written kind of cheat sheet almost, or, you know, 
and I hate to use this phrase, but a, a kind of a dummy's guide. And I say that as somebody who's read plenty of dummies guides in their time on how to basically manage a risk. Policies are obviously there as the definitive document, but sometimes kind of an abridged how-to guide can be helpful as well. And much like we've talked about on this podcast previously, the guidelines will, or the guidance, I should say, not guidelines, will kind of walk through the life cycle of a risk from the, when the, the problem is first identified that the risk is associated with, right through to articulating and describing the risk, putting in place controls, developing an action plan, a lead, time scales, and all the way through to mitigating and then closing the risk. So it's mm. going to talk you through every single stage of that. And, mm. and also, you know, as we've talked about today, all importantly, how to grade the risk, mm. um, both before controls, with controls in place, and then to kind of create a target risk that you're going to be working towards a target risk grading. So yeah, it's quite comprehensive. I think that it, it it's obviously something that we can work with teams to understand and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. with the ultimate goal that, you know, people will be able to manage their risks themselves with our support, but with that support being ever shrinking as people become more familiar with the, the mm. kind of basics of risk management. Yeah. As, as they, as their confidence grows, I think the way you describe it as a how to is certainly how, you know, we would want to position it as a how to, yeah, a sort of step-by-step -step how to really. And I think that one of the aspects of that guide that hopefully colleagues will find helpful is that not only does it give examples of what things are, but it also gives examples of what things aren't, which in my experience is really helpful to give a, a sort of more nuanced explanation of how to, because it's also how not to, isn't it? And I'm hoping that that's an aspect that colleagues, when they start using it, will find helpful because we've unpicked a little bit some of the common pitfalls, if you like, that, that you know, the, the old chestnut of risk versus issue. And we've done quite a bit of work to explain that in ways that hopefully will help colleagues to avoid some of those those traps that, you know, are, are sort of easy to fall into if you're not articulating and managing risk every day or if you're new to it or, or whatever. I suppose we ought to say just quickly that one other thing that we did in the refresh of the risk management policy while we're waiting for our new local risk management system is to try and suspend for now the concept of the accepted risk because we didn't feel that that was a helpful description in the context of the understanding that and strategic and the tools really and the sort of strategic approach that we have at GOSH at the moment that what that meant was a whole tier of risks or, or cohort of risks probably is a better description was just then flying below the radar because with that badge of accepted risk went a, a six monthly review frequency which wasn't really ideal we felt that things were a little bit out of sight potentially or just getting forgotten about and the idea of accepted risk is it's something you can no longer do anything about but it might still be quite high and if it is quite high a six-monthly review feels a little bit infrequent. So we've moved away from that, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the other thing is, apart from the, you know, medium risks that are accepted, which is, you know, as you say, a little bit of a concern in some ways, there's also the fact that many accepted risks 
are graded as a two or a three, you know, a, a very low grading. And it, it, it gets to the point where you have to ask yourself, really, is this business as usual? Mm. Because there's a certain amount of inherent risk. I mean, we work in a hospital. It's, it's mm. a risky environment. You know, there, there are going to be inherent risks in providing a service. And they're just things that you work around, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you're The ceiling building... might fall down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the fact that, for example, in a lot of non-clinical areas, there's no air conditioning, for example, you know, like you could say, well, that's a risk every year it gets hot in there and then it's mm. uncomfortable, staff can't work. Yeah, it is. But, you know, there's there's some things that just become business as usual mm. until, you know, at some point in the future when the buildings get renewed, I'm sure there'll be new ones mm. being built ducted here. But, you know, for the for the time being, while we're in Victorian era buildings, it's not yeah. going to happen. You know, it, it's a classic example, isn't it? And some of these risks have, have been mitigated as much as possible. You know, people, just to continue with that kind of quite poor example, people have got fans in, you know, they've, they've, they've had various working arrangements and stuff to try and help with it. But ultimately, those kind of risks are business as usual. And at that point, you probably should do some sort of risk assessment, have it signed off as something that is business as usual. Yeah, it's an issue. Yeah, the organization accepts it's a problem. But it isn't an actively managed risk anymore. Yeah, because it, it's sort of it's migrated or morphed over into an issue from a risk, isn't it? Because it's actually here and now. And there was a, a good challenge at an Ox board a few months ago about what we would, well, what would we do about risks such as the one you've described? And I've been cogitating recently, or since then, over well, you know how are we going to address that group of risks? Because I do acknowledge that situation. And I suppose it's about residual risk, isn't it? And what residual risk is. But I think we need to set that in the context of also what the organisation's risk appetite is for different domains of risk. And at the moment, our local risk management system doesn't enable us to categorise risks through those domains in a way that is aligned to the risk appetite, the trust risk appetite. So we're a little bit caught there we can't develop that thinking properly at the moment with what we're working with so actually we've we've been busy in our way haven't we and although we haven't been making podcasts we haven't been sitting on our hands as far as risk is concerned but we're back now with episode one series two we're going to be recording our podcast now with a new frequency now that we're on a different platform. And in fact, you and I are delivering some training to complement the podcast and just to support colleagues within the next month or so as we record this, which is the middle of May 2023. Do we want to say anything about that, those plans? Well, I guess just, you know, much as we've done today, there's a lot of changes come in and we've talked about them very briefly here, but we'll hopefully be going through those in more detail. And, you know, we can provide bespoke training, of course, but this will be an opportunity for people to come along to talk through the process as a group, to ask any questions and to have that real kind of collaborative spirit around understanding the new how to guide the policy itself. Yeah. yeah. And, and just general support. And that may lead us to a sort of bit of a regular surgery, if you like, for colleagues at GOSH to access. So perhaps you and I will be back to record at your own risk after that and we can talk a little bit about how that went and what we heard and how we were able to help 
um, and more future plans. And by then, the moves to bring in our next local risk management system may be a little further along the road. So we may have a bit more news on that. So not same time next month, but another time next month, Ian, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, that's great. Thanks so much, Ian. It's good. Good to be back in the at your own risk seat and we'll be back and hopefully we'll have some interesting developments, news and thoughts on managing risk for listeners in episode two of series two. So I'll see you then. Thanks, Ian.